Paul's introduction, which we've looked at for the past few weeks, is an effusion of words, nouns, and verbs, and adjectives that just spill out of him. And scholars have identified this sentence as the longest sentence in the New Testament. There's no, of course, in Greek, there's no punctuation. Uh, there were no capitals or, or lowercase letters. They either wrote the whole thing in capitals or the whole thing in lowercase. But you could usually determine from the context and the way the sentence uh, structure is some sort of breaks in the sentence and you could get some sense of, of which sentence follows which. But not here. In 14 verses, Paul just goes on. And you can imagine uh, the first recipient of this letter uh, reading it and saying, whoa, we've got to slow down and really look at what he's saying. It's too much in one sentence. And uh, that's what we've done the past five weeks. And this morning we're going to finish uh, with our last look at this introduction to the letter. I promise you for the rest of the book of Ephesians, we'll go a little bit quicker. But before I read the text, listen to what the theologian Sinclair Ferguson had to say about this book in its entirety, but more specifically about this first 14 verses. Listen to Dr. Ferguson. Romans is, humanly speaking, the most impressive of Paul's letters, but Ephesians is probably the most elegant. In its opening doxology, blessings cascade down upon the reader. In his closing verses, the smell of the battlefield lies heavily. But in and through the smoke of war, we see the Christian fully clad in the armor of spiritual warfare still standing from beginning to end. Ephesians sets before us the wonder of God's grace. The privilege of belonging to the church. And the pattern of life transformation the Gospel produces. The former president of Princeton Seminary, John McKay, said this letter is pure music. Truth that sings. Doctrine set to music. And so we've spent a lot of time on the introduction and I'm going to read it now and hope you will turn there with me if you will to Ephesians uh, chapter 1. And we'll read the first 14 verses again and at least for the last time in this particular series. Now hear God's Word. Paul and Apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved 
In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things in, on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory in Him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Take a breath. An amazing sentence. So this morning, let's look at three things very quickly. First of all, the gospel identity that Paul is setting forth before these Ephesian believers, their gospel identity is always to be seen in Him. In fact, in this just brief section of 14 verses, you find the phrase, in Him, in Christ, in the Beloved, over 14 times. Paul is making it very clear to the Ephesians that we never stand before God alone on our own. We can't. You see, those of us uh, human beings, and if you're older, an older person and you have some mileage on you like many of us do, you know that your performance has not been that great. It hasn't been that stellar. And even if you've been a pretty good person, we can find plenty of people better than you and better than me. And so in our subconscious and underneath the surface, what we have to do in order to justify our very existence and our acceptance before God, whoever God is, He, She, or It, what we have to do is we have to measure ourselves by other people. We have to say, you know, I'm not so bad as that other person. I actually have done the best I can. I'm, sin I'm sincere about what I do. And we start creating measurements of, of, of our identity based on things around us um, ho uh, horizontal to us. But the minute that you look vertical, the minute that you look up, into the heavens and you realize who God is and who the Bible says God is, a holy God, a just God, who created a beautiful universe. And as St. Augustine said, God created man, man created sin. And you realize that what we have done in our own lives, even in the small things, has often made us unacceptable to God. And so God in His love and mercy steps into time and space and the person of His Son. And Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus, you never 
can stand alone. You must always stand in Him. Find your identity in Him. In the Beloved One. And so what Paul does is he describes to us who we are. Our Gospel identity. Look at verses 1, 4, and 5. Look at what he says about us. Who we are. He says we are saints. This word in Greek is hagias. It means you are the holy ones of God. Now, I could ask you, how many of you feel holy? Not many of us would say, well, you know, I'm holy. But Paul is saying you are holy. And so what he's describing to you is your identity. Not what you do. Holiness is not is not primarily about your behavior. Holiness is primarily about who you are. And who you are will then change your behavior and transform your behavior and challenge some of your behaviors. But holiness can never be what you do. Otherwise, you're no better than a Pharisee. And the thing that separates Christianity, I've belabored this for five weeks and actually for longer than that in my time here with you at Christ the King, is that if, 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 you, if you find yourself measuring yourself by your moral rectitude, then you're just like everybody else in the world. The thing that distinguishes Christians, I was telling Scott this the other day at the gym, the thing that distinguishes Christians from everybody else is we repent not only of our sins, we repent of our self-justifying righteousness. We say no to our good works. And when we do perform good works, we do them for the glory of God and for the sake of Jesus Christ because He told us to. Not because we are at some level good people. And in that, we find an identity, folks. Listen to me. It is unassailable. Take any human being. I don't care if they're Christians or not. It makes no difference. Take a human being who steps out into their life and they do something horrific. They make a mistake. They, they kill or they steal or they lie or they cheat on their taxes or they run a red light. Whatever it is, it could be something from small to great. But you take anybody and that person has a sense of wrongdoing. And so what they do is they'll try to make up for it. But some of us have committed sins. I don't know about you, but some of us have committed sins for which there is no payment. There's no remedy. And if you're old, you don't have enough time to make up for it if you could. And if you're young, I'm pleading with you young people, give that idea up now that you can perform and jump through some hoops for God and fall upon Him in your youth. Fall upon Him with grace. Trusting Him. And your life will take on a whole new dimension. Ferguson goes on to say these terms, saints, holy ones, faithful, your response to grace, holy, again he uses, blameless, sons of God. These are the words that he calls us. This is our identity. Before we do any good or bad in our lives, God has said something about you. And Ferguson says this, the combination of these terms summarize the structure of the entire letter. The first half, 
chapters 1 through 3, Paul uses no indicative verbs. I told you this week after week. He doesn't say, do this, do this, do this. He spends three whole chapters saying, this is who you are. Christ the King. This is who you are, people of God. Then he spends the final three chapters telling you what to do. Now that you've established who you are, step into your identity. Be who you are. And there you will find real power and real hope. Not just for obedience, 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 but deeper and deeper repentance and sorrowing over our sin. We can actually really repent. Truly turn away from those things. Look at them for what they are. Slavery. Not freedom. You know, the world dangles out carrots and says, oh, this will make you happy. Has that ever happened to any of you? What's buyer's remorse? Buyer's remorse is when the car no longer smells the way it did those few weeks ago. That's buyer's remorse. And who hasn't had that? We have it in our marriages. We get married, you know, things go great. Hey, this is a happy day. And then a few years later, you know, things start to get rough and you start to cross each other's will. And right away, right away we start thinking, well, maybe I made a mistake. A buyer's remorse. Or our kids. Sometimes our kids go off the rails, you know, and they don't achieve everything we wanted them to achieve. They're not this high performance uber child that makes straight A's and does everything perfect and never makes a mistake, and they disappoint us. And we have buyer's remorse. Well, I'm kind of stuck with that. <laughs> but you get the idea. Now, this is not a New Testament concept, folks. This is what. God said, listen, amazing to me. On the Mount Sinai, God brings His people out of Egypt and frees them. Brings them to Mount Sinai. Chapter 20, this is chapter 19. Chapter 20, He's going to give them the law. Ten Commandments, chapter 20. But in chapter 19, if I could be so bold, is the Apostle Paul, uh, the uh, God of heaven and earth is going to channel the Apostle Paul. And here's what he does. He tells them before he gives them the Ten Commandments this. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you out on eagles' wings. And I brought you, listen, to Myself. Sound like in Him? I bore you out on eagles' wings and I brought you to him to myself. Now, therefore, because I did this, because I brought you out, I bore you on eagles' wings, I brought you to myself. Now that I did this for you, if you will obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. He's telling them, Look what I've done for you, now be who you are. And that sets up the entire Old Testament corpus of God's people living in covenant love and obedience to a Creator. What does this new identity do for you? Let me give it to you briefly. I've said it several times over the past few weeks, but I want to finish it up with this. uh, At least this part. 
if you're going to become the new humanity that God means you to be, and most of you here are Christians, you are believers in Jesus Christ, and maybe you come from another church background, I don't care. I don't want you to become a Presbyterian. Well, I kind of do. I, I don't want you to become a Presbyterian. I'm kidding. I want you to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And then join the Presbyterian church. Okay, never mind. Look, if He wants you to be who you are, He wants you to be who you are, and if you're going to be that new humanity and you embrace this, this truth that Paul lays out just in these 14, if you had nothing else Paul ever wrote but these 14 verses, this will defeat pride. It will defeat this idea that we have, all of us, at one point or another, I'm better than other people. We will quit measuring ourselves, as Paul says in another place, we measure ourselves by ourselves, and therefore we become fools. We're foolish. We can always find somebody better than us, and we can always find somebody worse than us. But step into the light where Jesus Christ is standing there next to you. And if you don't worship Him, my friends, you will hate Him. He leaves no middle ground. He's not just some good person. You take Him or leave Him. Everyone that met Jesus either loved Him and worshipped Him or they wanted to kill Him. He's never neutral. He's way too powerful. He's way too great. He's way too good. He is divine God in flesh. And therefore, when we come into contact with Him, we can no longer say, I'm better than somebody else. As the old saying goes, the ground at the cross is equal for everyone. It defeats that crushing pride that most of us live with all our lives. And it will absolutely remove it. It creates true humility. As C.S. Lewis says, and, I, and I've quoted this before, it's not thinking, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. So that you're not the center of your universe. The sun doesn't rise and set on you. It defeats fear. Fear that cripples us. If I don't obey Him, He will punish me. Paul is saying, no, you're in Him. He has created a new dignity, a new identity for you. So it defeats pride, but it also defeats uh, a fear where we think, well, if I mess up, He's going to toss me away like an old rag. He's going to hold His nose at me every time I make a mistake. When I sin, uh, He moves away from me. No, my friends, when you sin, God gets close to you. He comes in and grabs you like a, ch like a parent whose children are misbehaving. When your kids were little and they were misbehaving, did you just let them take uh, the kitchen knife and slash themselves to pieces? No, you ran over and grabbed them, took the knife away, and you grabbed on and told them until they were through screaming and yelling. Well, that's what He does with us. We can go haywire and He just closes in like a good parent and just goes and grabs you. And He will not let you go. He binds you with cords of love so that when we do find our way back, what we find is an embrace. Not someone holding his nose looking away. Oh, I don't like them. You know, they messed up again for the thousandth time. In my case, several thousands of times. 
If I don't obey, He'll punish me. No, it defeats that fear of rejection. It does away with doubt. It can help you combat. We all have doubts, but it will actually help you fight doubt. If I fail, He'll abandon me. No. Paul says 14 times and more, you're in Him. You're in the Beloved. You're in Christ. You have a new identity. He will never leave you or forsake you. Yeah, but you don't know what I did. Oh, yes, I do. And so does everyone else in this room, by the way. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Yes. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. We know what it is to be in that place. So we can look around and we can have have confidence that He loves us and will hold on to us. And it does away with the idolatry of self. It creates true doxology. That's what this whole 14 verses is all about. It's about praising God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, this man can't, he can't say it fast enough. He can't say it uh, powerfully enough. He, it, it, as Ferguson says it best, it cascades down upon the Ephesians. It's just like a waterfall pouring down and bearing them down, down, down to where they are lifted up, up, up in worship. Doxology. Glory. What you were made for. We were made for glory. Listen to this. Who you are must inform what you do. Naked obedience based in servile fear or self-justifying pride, servile fear or self-justifying pride will lead you to exhaustion and a distorted relationship with God. Your outside life may look good. In other words, you'll be what Jesus called a whited sepulcher, outside looking good, an outside grave, but inside full of dead men's bones. You will be an exhausted Christian. If you're here this morning, folks, and you're just exhausted, it's because you are still living by your works and by acceptance, by performance, not by the grace of God living out who you are, if you're tired, if your Christianity is weighing you down and exhausting you, it is because of that. And it's something that you must face. You might maybe have to face it this morning and when you come to Holy Communion, I hope that you'll come, take the communion uh, bread, eat it, take the cup, sit down, and at that moment tell Jesus, you know what, I'm living by my merit. I know that I'm here uh, because I, I, I want approval and I'm going to perform for you. I've been jumping through a lot of hoops. But this morning, again, maybe for the hundredth time, I have to do it almost every Sunday, I, you tell him, no more. I'm going to give it up at least for the next few hours. <laughs> I'm going to drink this wine because it's your blood for me. I'm going to eat this bread because it's your body for me. Gospel identity provides unassailable, folks, it's unassailable, humility, dignity, security, and doxology, and it comes by sheer grace. Sheer grace. So you have a new identity. Then there's two more things. We're going to do these quickly. First, secondly, a gospel purpose. Gospel identity, gospel 
purpose. These are the rest of the words, the nouns and the adjectives and the verbs that, that Paul just pours out, that cascade, if you will, onto us and into our lives. Gospel purpose. The identity is about who you are. The Gospel purpose, listen carefully, the Gospel purpose is not about what you do. Gospel purpose is about what God has done for you so that you can now do something, which you'll come to later. We'll get into that in, in a few months. Gospel purpose is God's purpose. Here is what I, here's who you are. Saints, holy ones, faithful, blameless. But here's what I have done to remove every obstacle from your life so that you can go with joy and excitement, not being exhausted. Maybe you're tired because you've worked hard. That's one thing. But exhaustion because of merit or work performance, righteousness before God will exhaust your soul. And so he's saying here's the purpose. Look, verse 2. Grace and peace. This is the sum, by the way. The sum, I would say, the sum of the entire Bible. If you want to know what is, the, what is the sum of the Bible, the sum of the Bible is man shaking his fist at God and God coming down to man and instead of killing him, clothing him with skins of animals and shedding blood for their sake and saying to a disobedient humanity, grace and peace to you. And I'll start today, Adam and Eve. I'll start today. I will kill an innocent for you. And I will finish it by killing another innocent for you. And clothing you in His skin. His righteousness. Grace and peace to you. Look at 3 and 6. Blessed. We are blessed with spiritual blessings in heavenly realm. Do you realize blessing in heavenly realms means it can't be touched? See, people can take away your earthly blessings, right? Your health can get removed. You can lose a child. You can lose a job. You could lose a spouse. You could lose a place. Your home. There's a lot of things. You could lose your dignity. You could lose, you could do something so bad your reputation is shot. You can lose all kinds of things here. But what Paul is saying, you can't lose this. It's a spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. It's preserved for you. Can't be taken away. You're in the beloved. Look at verse 4. You're chosen, predestined. There is a cosmic dimension to your life and my life that started before the foundation of the world. We don't just walk into church one day and say, oh, they're, oh, they're offering me Jesus. Oh, I'll take Him or I'll leave Him. How crazy is that? And our country is saturated in it. American evangelicalism is eaten up with it. And here we are, a little band over here, you know, we're waving our John Calvin flag. And we're saying, no, God has done something in and through and for you that predates you. 
And people kick up all kinds of dust over it. They just can't stand the idea that God may have loved you before the foundation of the world. What's wrong with that? Listen, it protects you. It gives you dignity. Chosen, predestined, redeemed, verse 7. Forgiven, verse 7. Lavish, rich grace lavished upon you. In verse 14 and 11, he says you have an inheritance. In verse 12, glory. In verse 13, he says he has sealed you. Sealed you, that means uh, he, he's taken his seal and he's put it on kind of like a brand. One of my cousins is here this morning who owns a ranch in Texas and they br you brand them, right, Wayne? Yeah, you brand them. When you brand them, they're mine. Nobody takes them away, right? You go to war over that. Well, when you folks bring your babies to this church and you bring your babies to me or you come as an adult and you say, I want you to brand my baby, that's what we do. We brand that baby with water. And what God is saying is that baby is mine now and forever. So, oh, wait, wait a minute. Don't they have to accept Jesus? Don't bother me with all that right now. Think about it. All we're doing is saying, God is saying to your children, this is mine. Of course they have to believe. But Paul is telling the Ephesian church, look, the dragon was going to come out of the sea and it was going to have seven heads and ten horns, the, Bible, the book of Revelation tells us. That dragon was ready to rise out of the sea and devour the church. It started trying to devour Jesus, but He escaped to the wilderness. And He takes His church with Him. And when that dragon with seven heads and ten horns rose out of the sea, the Christians grabbed their Bibles and they read Ephesians and other things, but they read Ephesians and they were willing to die for their faith because they actually, actually believed this. They actually believed it. And I'm pleading with you folks, please believe this. Christianity, listen closely. God has a purpose for you. Christianity is not a lifestyle. It's not a lifestyle. The Bible is not an instruction manual. The Bible is life. New life united to Jesus. And it's your only hope of having any purpose or meaning in your life, whether you're young or old. If you don't find your purpose there, you won't find it at all. And finally, quickly, gospel life. We've got to qu quit. A gospel identity, gospel purpose, and finally, gospel life. How do you live? How do you actually do that? Very quickly, let me give you four things. It comes from verses 13 and 14. Look at them. I'm not making this up. He tells the Ephesians, look, you've heard the word of truth. You believed in Him. You were sealed with His Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of your inheritance. So from that, I'm going to take four things. And I'm going to say this, folks. If you are going to live as the new humanity of Jesus Christ, and let me be very blunt with you, you're going to have to live by the Word of God. You must saturate your life with Scripture. 
You must saturate. In other words, your life, you live by the Word. Jesus said we live every... Our life is every Word of God. That's our bread. That is our life. And so carve out some time. It doesn't have to be a long time. I mean, in the journey with our journey guys and gals, you know, we tell them five minutes a day, read your Bible. Spend a few minutes praying. Give God 15 minutes. No, I don't feel like praying. Nobody feels like praying. Come on, get real. Pray. Read your Bible. We live by the Word of God. Learn good theology. We teach good theology in this class. The Monday night class should be full. All of you should come to Monday night. So see you tomorrow. Everyone should be doing something to fill their lives with good theology and plenty of Bible. Saturate your life. None of you would go without a meal. Maybe one. But people in the church often will go all week long, never open their Bible, show up for church, listen to about 10 minutes of the sermon, of the 30-minute sermon, and then out the door, don't go to Sunday school, don't bother, don't have a mentor in your life, don't have a coach, don't do anything. And then they expect to flourish. Well, hello. How's that working for you, by the way? It's not working. So saturate your life. Live by faith. In other words, extend yourself in places and in ways where you would not normally go. And I've said before, faith is not a force. It's not something you have in you. Faith is only as good as the object in which you place it. And so put your faith in Jesus Christ. And Horatius Boner, the great Presbyterian preacher, said even the littlest, most paltry, most mixed up with doubt kind of faith, Even that little tiny bit of faith, that mustard seed of faith, if it's put in a great God, will accomplish great things. Jesus said it would move mountains. So take your faith and put it in Christ. Don't have faith in faith. Have faith in Christ. And certainly don't have faith in you. Faith in faith won't work. Faith in Christ always worth. Live in the power of His Holy Spirit. There's glory, folks, in weakness. We always want to play to our strengths. Take a chance. Play to your weakness. Don't stand up and defend yourself every time someone criticizes you. Refuse to do that. And let weakness take its place in your life. And then the Apostle Paul says, my weakness, strength was made perfect in my weakness. But we're afraid, of course. And live as heirs. People who have are and will inherit a kingdom. We are extending the kingdom. How do you do that? You unite yourself to Jesus Christ. And folks, listen, let me finish with this. At the very center of the Christian faith, the very heart of it, if you want to drill down to the core, to the center of the Christian faith, at its center and core, you have the heir of God, the Son of God who had it all. All the glory, all the riches, all the power in the universe, all the strength. And He gave it up. All of it. On the cross. 
in a way, in a sense, He was disinherited so that we could be in heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, as the Apostle says in Galatians. Think about it. At the very center of the Christian faith is a man who gave everything on the cross for you and for me so that we could be clothed with Him. Perfect righteousness. Perfect. I hope you believe that. And I hope you'll receive it this morning. Let's, let's pray. Father, thanks uh, for this time this morning. Thank You for Your goodness and Your mercy that endures forever. And as we come to Holy Communion, Father, this morning to eat this bread and drink this blood, uh, this wine that represents Your blood, we pray that You will in some way communicate to us through this Holy Communion the reality that we are in Christ, that He is in us, and that we are in Him. And that we live and move and have our being in this great God and King, our Savior. I pray that as every one of us come to the table this morning, that You'll feed us in this way. Nourish us. Let us come to You, Father, with all our hurts and pains and fears and doubts and lay them before You. You who gave it all, that we might have it all. All in You. I pray You'll do that. Please, in Jesus' name, amen.